no story about why we have to start again. <laughs> okay. So um, you all are excellent, and you rock, and you're very awesome. That's my first message. Um, thinking about all of the effort that all of you have put in in the last three, four days, if you imagined it as a physical ball of merit, it would be extremely huge. It, even though it seems like a short movement away from being off in la-la land and coming back, that's, there's been probably several million moments of that that have happened. And several million, or at least, let's see, it would have to be several, I'm trying to be like Wes. <laughs> With the numbers, you know. <laughs> Somebody's saying don't try to be like Wes. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so um, Franz was teaching us some German, and um, there's something called summoning your inner pig dog that <laughs> you have to do, like when the bell rings in the morning and you don't want to get out of bed, but still you do. So thank you for summoning your inner pig dog so many times. Um, <laughs> oops. <laughs> And I'm also here to tell you that you've all reached a stage in the retreat where there's a certain cooking going on. And I don't know if you can feel that, a type of what, if we were to, speaking in yogic terms, might be called inner heat. Not just outer heat, but kind of inner heat um, for, as a result of this effort. So on this day, it's good for me to speak about effort and some ways to refine and deepen your retreat and kind of stay with and track yourself. Because the energy that you've put in um, is actually cumulative. And as you guys are in your experience, you don't really necessarily notice um, that you're deepening. Maybe you do and maybe you don't. But sometimes um, this moment after moment after moment of awareness adds up and it starts to produce an altered state. Um, in Spanish, there's a word called alterado, which means kind of like altered in not a good way. <laughs> That's sometimes what happens, that uh, you get into a state in your practice where it's actually quite uncomfortable to be with your experience. You kind of feel you know, intensity about a lot of different things and stuff starts to bubble and boil in you. And as teachers and as managers, um, it's just routine that we experience this. I, when I uh, was a younger yogi at Insight Meditation Society, there was a time when the office was completely open and people would come in and make their requests verbally. And eventually they had to set up a little counter so that when people came in during the three-month course to ask for toothpaste, and they'd been thinking for three days about what brand they wanted, and they said, Crest! You know? <laughs> There was some physical distance and a barrier in between. <laughs> so in the beginning of the retreat, what happens is that you're just invited to be just here and now with just this. And it, at first, it may feel like such a relief. You can just like drop past and future and just be here. And then for a few days, you fall asleep on your cushion, and you kind of slumber. And then the bell rings and wakes you up. And 
then you have to keep on doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and coming to the sitting and doing the walking and restraining yourself from running out of the hall yelling um, <laughs> as much as you would love to do that. The peer pressure keeps you here trying to look <laughs> somewhat civilized. <laughs> That's part of the design um, of a retreat. You're kind of forced into tolerating your process in a way that you that we almost never are in our regular life. Even if you look at your watch 10 times um, before you get up. Because what's happening is that normally in our life, we um, get to a place where we feel uncomfortable or deprived or lonely, and we can phone somebody, or we can get on our email, or we can eat something, or we can do shopping therapy, and all of the ways that we sort of, you could call it physically acting out um, to resolve our discomfort are kind of mostly stripped away here. So we're left with the raw kind of drive. Um, and the thing that we often try to not be with, which is part of ourself, which is also the primordial and very intense life force that moves through everybody. Um, so when it feels like we're sort of very angry or we would like to leave here or mentally we leave and we start to build uh, some amazing business that will really bring enlightenment to all beings or lots of wealth at least to us, uh, <laughs> the mindfulness app or something like that. <laughs> That's kind of our mind trying to find uh, some solace by, you know, sort of acting out in the mind a little bit. So at this point in the retreat, it's very good to have some ways of addressing and working with and opening to and soothing and learning from some of the intensities that come up. Otherwise, it's just called sort of tweaking I remember in one retreat not so long ago, I was actually only teaching, but I did start to think about this website where everybody could log in and they could put in the number of hours that they'd actually meditated. And I thought, you know, when people leave a retreat, it would be good that they could just not disappear and there would be a way that they could still connect. But how are they going to count all those hours? And, you know, what if people lie and things like that? You know, and there must be simple counting devices that we could do. And should I charge for this or not? And, you know... <laughs> Would people keep their own account, or would it all go into one ball? And then could they donate it? And if so, how could we decide which cause, <laughs> which suffering area of the world to put it to? You know, it was a lot of joy had been arising in my practice, and that's sort of what it turned into, this big air castle. And um, <laughs> I haven't done that, but if any of you wants to do it after the retreat, you're very welcome. <laughs> I've also been um, someone who has written notes. Uh, I've written those dense black notes that are unsigned except for the word meta. <laughs> <laughs> like when I had to sleep next to the showers at, in a building at IMS and people were not showering at the proper hours and it was making me unable to sleep. And, you know, I didn't... <laughs> I, put up, I put it up on the wall and then I went back into my room to meditate and I felt the sort of, like... Oh my God, 
it was really just this kind of angry note. So I had to get up from my, I couldn't even sit with the embarrassment. I had to get up from my cushion and go take it down and come back and sit down. And then it was like, oh, God, that's over. Thank God. <laughs> anyway, so this is extremely natural and normal. And um, we rejoice in it because we see that everybody's cooking together in this big stew as um, kind of rubbing up against one another and rubbing up against the situation in the retreat. So I want to talk a little bit about how to bring, um, bring those intensities onto the path. Um, and these uh, pieces of advice are as useful in regular life as in the retreat. I had originally written a kind of very soothing and uplifting talk. And then meeting with people today and kind of feeling the heat and the desert myself, uh, I thought that I needed to make some more specific instructions to what's going on here. So the talk is both a talk to address where I feel like we all are and a general talk about uh, ways of inspiring ourselves and continuing with the practice and undoing the habit that we have of disconnecting. So the main instruction about how to reconnect ourselves is just to remember to do it. It's on a list of Tibetan pieces of advice on overcoming laziness. Remember the instruction, um, which I liked because it's so easy. It doesn't sound like laziness is so bad if all you have to do is remember the instruction. And most ultimately, it means not just remembering the instruction, but remembering who we really are and what we're really doing here and what our aspiration is and faith in our own experience. As Jack said in his original talk, O nobly born, as the Buddha said, always reminding us that we actually rock and we're awesome, you know, and that we're working really, really hard here and that that work that we're doing um, as floundering as it may feel, is an expression of our nobility and our care, as much as we often may forget that. Remembering our innate compassion and how it feels when the whole hall of us is sending goodwill to all beings and goodwill to the earth, and how good and how right that feels, how it tunes to something in us that feels so true and so beautiful. My Tibetan teacher um, says with great tenderness to remember that even the smallest of bugs has aspirations. Um, and so do we, so do we. So with the tender heart of compassion to remember like deep down within ourselves that ever since we were babies and ever since our brain was a lizard and a bug, that we all have some sense of wanting to take care of ourselves and wanting to have well-being, a deep, deep desire for that, for peace, which gets channeled in sort of some odd ways. But when we reconnect with that deep aspiration, um, something comes right in us. I was traveling in Brazil a few years ago, and I went to a place in Salvador de Bahia, which is um, maybe one of the most African places in the world since uh, people from Africa were 
forcibly brought there and created a culture and maintained a culture that kind of didn't morph in the same ways that um, the culture in Africa itself did. So the African religion there is quite um, close to a, you know original ancient form as they've carried it and held it. And we visited a place called a terreiro, which is a, means a land or a space where little kids are uh, taken into retreat for 10 weeks at the age of 10 or so. They leave their regular life and they spend some time in a building of about this size but lower because it's semi-sunken to the earth so that they can be most of the time in darkness and being trained to receive the African deities to become like a, open themselves to sort of these deep spiritual influences and personalities or they called becoming sort of a horse or something to be ridden by this divine energy. So each of the different divinities has a little house around this place. So you can visit the house of this god or goddess or divine energy and there's different people who live there and when you're in this retreat place as a young person, um, you're sort of figuring out whose child you are, like who, which god is going to be the one that you're connected with. So when we were walking around, my husband and I, they were talking to some of these little kids, and one of them started telling me that, you know, which one was his god, Chang'o, which is this really wrathful one. And he said it with such confidence and almost a little bit of scorn, like, you probably don't know who your god is, you know, just like a 10-year-old kid would, <laughs> you know, like, but my god is this, you know, my, you know, I'm the vehicle for this divinity. And I thought it was really cool to meet someone of that age with such confidence to know that divinity inhabits him and which one and in what way and that he had a culture that was also helping him connect in this way. It wasn't just about him and this, it was also the whole context of you know, cultural preservation and dignity and respect. And in our own little way, that's what we're doing here also. We're in this tent or this place um, attempting to discover what's sacred in us and uncover more and more what's beautiful in us, our true nature that is latent, but that we don't necessarily always see or don't recognize. It's a sacred quest, although we're not looking for like some particular like entity because that's not the way Buddhism works. Um, we're trying to look at and discover within the shifting pattern of our experience some openness of heart or some accommodation to the nature of life that is deeper and those experiences are there to ultimately see that maybe we're part of everything or we are everything and we're also nothing at the same time, something like that. There's a sense of intuitive shifting ground um, that happens in this practice. We have to do it inwardly for ourselves. It's about turning our awareness inside but it's also very difficult to do it alone. So um, the absurdity of sitting here, well, sort of sweating and stuff like that, is also kind of our solidarity that we stay. The Buddha said in the Sutta Nipata, if a person holds him or herself dear, she will watch herself carefully. The disciples of Gotama are always well awake, and their mind 
day and night, delights in compassion. I'll read that again. If a person holds themselves dear, they will watch themselves carefully. The disciples of Gotama are always well awake, and their mind day and night always delights in compassion. Compassion being the awareness that's willing to touch on suffering, to touch on the true nature of life in ourselves and others, regardless of how it feels, up and down, sideways, bored, and being able to find some delight in that. Or more simply, it's learning to kind of live our own life while we're alive, Um, to be here in the truth of our experience and to start to recognize how much it matters and how beautiful it can be to be intimate with yourself um, moment by moment by moment by moment. The Zen master Uchiyama said, um, just as we cannot fart other people's farts, we have to live this way for ourselves. It's something that nobody else can do for us. (laughs) Yeah, remember that instruction, okay? (laughs) So remembering the instruction is actually hard because forgetting is kind of the normal thing. And it's remembering that is the unusual thing. As Wes was saying yesterday, like we're a baby species with baby mindfulness. This is why we talk to you sometimes in the sitting, remembering you, reminding you to come back to the present moment because we know what it's like. And in fact, normally I tend to give those little instructions in a sitting when I am just returning from some long space voyage myself. (laughs) (laughs) So the effort is actually kind of a different one than normal. Um, You know, a lot of times effort talks sound sort of dreary, like, now on top of everything that we have to do, then we also have to make an effort in our meditation, something like that. But it's sort of weird that we're trying to get to be here and not trying to get somewhere else, and that it's by virtue of being able to be here that the transformation occurs. It's something like a crucible and something very odd that we're not sort of geared to do. That's why Noah's t-shirt, I think, says against the stream because it's not what we normally are doing. Sometimes it can be called something like pure being or just being or presence or something like that. Fancy words for being there moment after moment after moment. It's called sometimes joyous effort. And I always feel like when they say that, they're saying that because it makes us so annoyed to hear about effort. (laughs) Remember to be joyous. (laughs) Or balanced effort to get rid of the feeling of striving, you know, to remember that we try to not be perfectionistic about it, um, that we make kind of an appropriate amount of effort. And the simplest literal translation of it is virya, which sort of means courage. And that's a very relevant, too. Courage, meaning the root meaning from the heart, right? Cor, uh, corazón. Um, so it's being there with your heart, kind of, and needing to be brave. In normal life, we have 
really so much to do to feed ourselves and bathe ourselves and bathe the bodies of others sometimes, uh, old and young uh, or sick people, sustain our income. As my Tibetan Lama says, you guys have to work really hard to keep this together like your, our situation uh, seems to require a tremendous amount of work and sort of in the current cultural conditions, more and more and more work or you're gonna, you might get laid off. Um, many people are doing the jobs of more than one person. Save for your retirement on top of it. Prevent your brain from deteriorating by playing little games on the computer. <laughs> you know? Exercise your body. Um, maintain your social status. Worry about your children. Um, brush your teeth every day, not just once, more than once a day, and still they turn yellow and fall out, even though, <laughs> despite all of this. It's kind of the worldly effort that's so exhausting. It never really stops. If you're the sort of subject-object kind of life is just endless. There's a New Yorker cartoon of two knights who are riding away on some battle in their armor, riding away from their castle. And one of them turns around and is looking up at this huge tower and said, damn, I left the windows open. <laughs> <laughs> And we're very preoccupied with that stuff. You know, a lot of times when I sit at home, I sit and I get quiet, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, you know, I have to put the storm windows on the basement. It's really time. You know, that cold air is coming in, it's, it's seeping through the house. We're losing all this money. We can't afford it. Like, I can't rest until I put those on. Sometimes I'd go and do it, but not always. But anyway, luckily we're here and we've kind of been able to set some of that stuff aside, but it's really amazing that you've been able to do this. So we need a kind of systematic training and support to come back and back and back again. It's really not a non-action. It's coming back to this place from which we can draw the deepest kind of nourishment and strength and actually thinking of relaxing into the bareness of kind of the original reality that's coming up, you can start to feel it as a very delicious kind of opening of just resting in what is rather than feeling like that you have to really kind of be doing a lot more. If you just allow your experience to come and get a little bit out of the way, um, it's a lot easier. Carol's first instructions the, when we first sat down here was just relax and let your mental state be your mental state. Let your breath be your breath. Let your body be your body. And it can be like that, that relaxation is a kind of unusual muscle that we're also not used to letting things be because we're so used to being in a rush and so used to having to accomplish things and so used to kind of not being able to be receptive because we need to be preoccupied with so many things and multitasking and all of that. And, we don't stop that much to be. And there's something kind of hard and harsh that builds up in us. That also, when we step into here, it's almost like we've quit smoking or something. Like if anyone has ever quit smoking, which I did a few times in my teens and 20s, I haven't smoked in a long time, but I remember that everything that I had been suppressing by smoking was there, especially in the early period after I quit, I just hated myself like inordinately and 
just felt my body was scratchy and everything was just awful. And it's a little bit like that when we stop after having been in such a rush, like a little bit more to the feeling of, you know, sort of suppressed things or things that we haven't had time to really feel come out. And for me, I'm also in a life right now, a period of my life where there's a lot of people who are sick around me and not to, I'll tell a little bit more about that later in the talk, but it's like in order to be there for them, um, I don't have the chance to be sad really because I don't want necessarily, they're already sick, so I don't necessarily want them to also be with me being sad quite so much. So when I have left them, then I get sadder kind of like, it's not only just a vacation. It's sort of being able to feel what I need to feel um, in solitude or in kind of like the right context. So that may be happening for some of you also, that you're not able or you don't have the luxury of just having all your emotions there. Um, so please try to enjoy it. <laughs> and persuade your mind or your attention or your heart to come back to this moment again and again and again to what's real for you, to what's actually happening. That's sort of the greater practice. We say to land on what's obvious and what's, you know, coarse. We train to be balanced with the breath and with our steps also because it's a way of, you, your feet are not necessarily obsessing when you're walking. Have you noticed that when you are just feeling the pressure of your foot on the ground, it's kind of just that. It's pretty nice. It's a little bit of a relief. But also, uh, from our emotional life, we have to persuade ourselves to be able to feel what we're feeling and have the wiria or the courage or the coraje to kind of be there with it. Recently, I was holding uh, Noah's baby, Stevie Ray, who was very, very cute, a little in the little bean stage of being kind of like a little loaf of person kind of thing. <laughs> um, and I'm not a mother. I chose to not have children. So I was, I was having doubts about my competence. I was sure that the minute I got a hold of him, he would start crying, which he did. <laughs> but um, his mom was down getting dinner, and I had volunteered to do it. And Trudy said, I'll take him away from you. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to see if what I can do. And pretty soon... I noticed that he was sucking on my arm. So he was hungry, and there wasn't much there for him. And so he sucked on my arm for a little while, and then he started sort of biting it. And it was like it still kind of wasn't working for him. And he started to get fussy. And so I thought, what can I give this poor little thing? And I took him over near a tree, and there were these little pine cones on the tree. And I put him close to it, and he started to kind of like really get into it and look at these blue little shapes and these green little shapes and pretty soon he wasn't fussing anymore. It was great. And I was like, that's kind of like our mind, like persuaded to be fascinated with something, you know, like <laughs> persuaded to look with that kind of really awesome as if for the first time wonder and absorption um, in things. And sometimes you kind of do have to talk yourself into that position of amazement or like almost open up the child and yourself again deliberately like making that kind of effort to be with your experience in that way or sometimes if you're fussing and you're kind of inconsolable um, 
see if you can find something that you can be with. We talk about that some in the interviews, to you know, feel your feet or enter into the flow of experience somehow, like go look at a bird or listen to the fountain or something where you can regain your balance. Like there's a certain amount of skill in being with our experience. Like to be able to open up to the full intense energy is one skill, but also being able to find where we can kind of gather our forces and rest and relax and then come back to what's happening from a stronger place rather than feeling like the effort is going to be that I have to really just go through this, I'm going to resolve it, I'm going to be with it once and for all. Like I remember I had a meeting with somebody one time who said that she was having conflict with her boyfriend in her mind and I said, well, where is it in the body? And she said, well, it's, it's in my heart. And I said, how do you feel when, if you can hold it in your heart? And she said, I kind of feel you know, tender and it kind of dissolves. And she said, but then I want to go back and think about it again so I can really resolve it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know. I think it might be good to know that you can kind of move into your heart more and that the sense of conflict doesn't persist. Like maybe that would be a good place to come from. And anyway, something like that. Another thing that I find very helpful is to think about being with experience as if you know, I were my own child or I were my own mother, to evoke that kind of kindness and tenderness, to uh, remember that I'm just one more vulnerable human being here on the planet trying to make it from dawn to dusk in a reasonably undented way to let the ownership and the meanness kind of be set aside for a moment and to just sort of see myself, I'm an individual, like I am a sort of particular body-mind process, but there's a way that I can kind of see myself as one among all of us, one among all beings that's helpful. And it's a little bit of a deliberate, uh, like almost sliding open a window or sliding something aside. I don't know if it works for any of you, but I offer that to slightly, almost as if I switch myself for another, like as if I were someone else to myself, like what do I think about what's going on for this person right now? If I were someone else, I wouldn't be beating myself up this way. I wouldn't treat a friend this way, would I? So what if I were my own friend? Then how would I be treating myself in this moment? It just helps to make a more balanced effort to sort of be able to be strong and soft at the same time. The instruction from the Buddha was to remember a guitar string that, you know, if you pull it too tight, it'll snap. And if there's no tension in it at all, there will be no beautiful sound. So you kind of find the right, the right amount of effort and connection and the right amount of sort of stepping back and relaxing and being kind and not being perfectionistic. Someone in the interviews was talking about being a sailor and how uh, that also is a helpful kind of image to you know, be under full sail at certain times and batten down the hatches at others or how much paying attention to the kind of energy that is in the wind and in sort of our psychological environment um, helps us modulate the kind of effort that we're making through the day. So see if you can look at that. It's almost a kinesthetic experience of 
how am I in balance? You know, how am I not sort of reaching forward and feeling that sense of pushing and agitation? Or how am I actually not connecting and zoning out and, you know, just thinking about my new set of cookware that I'm going to get and, you know, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> after I burn the popcorn pot. Another good instruction for effort for you all today or in the ongoing days is um, it's a little bit different from that one, which is I was just giving some of the relaxation kind of sense of things of really loving and being gentle and kind of back and relaxed in, you know, in your being. But also in the practice instructions, it's helpful if you can really connect with the sensations in your breath and in your feet, like to really feel the pressure and the heat and the coolness and the tingling to actually connect with the, the hotness of the heat. Or you can even practice it in kind of a fun way and look at the plants and deliberately select and see the, the precise tonality of the green color of a cactus or the shape of one of the Joshua trees and really find yourself tuning in to details and experience. Um, very interesting and it will help bring your practice deeper. Like, as you listen to the talk, also, it's possible to hear the sound and tone of the voice that's carrying the meaning and something almost like the shapes of the words. Um, it's sort of tuning into a different level of awareness than the sort of brain one. That, um, not that you should, like, sometimes I used to enjoy making talks into gibberish in that manner, when I would start to get bored, I would say, like, I'm just going to listen to the sound of the voice so intently that I don't understand what they're saying anymore. <laughs> um, ways of amusing oneself as a yogi, always good. <laughs> Another thing that is a helpful sort of hint or investigation that uh, could become a full practice for both here and in life is to just recognize when our mind catches slightly on fire for something, like, and how many times it happens, and in how many varieties it happens, when that certain kind of activation takes place. Like for me, say, if I'm at home, and my husband has gone out grocery shopping, and I gave him a list, and I come back, and I'm hungry, and I go to the fridge, and I open it up, and there is no plain yogurt, because he doesn't like plain yogurt, so he doesn't see it on the list. So. If I'm going to get plain yogurt, I have to go and get it myself, you know, and how pathetic I feel and neglected and all things. Catching on fire. Catching on fire. That happens. Or here, when you're in the lunch line and you maybe waited a long time so you don't have to endure the suffering of being in the line and you get there and the people have not had the consideration to leave you any salad dressing. Have you noticed how that is? They're all ahead, and there's maybe just a few leaves down in the bottom of the salad bowl. <laughs> you, go, you see people with these heaping plates, and you're like, <laughs> there's a little bit of what about me? I don't know. I'm maybe telling you more about myself than, <laughs> than you need to know. <laughs> but in the practice, it's really good to look at that and to see it as a kind of like an energy of mind almost more than as a situation and to appreciate sort of like being able to walk into the intensity of that and actually be willing to feel it. I remember um, when I first was teaching, I taught rather well-heeled 
analytic clients in New York. And um, I remember we used to have retreats in the country, and one of them would bring her full-length black mink because it was too cold, so she would pull it up over her sleeping bag <laughs> and sleep in it. Um, and she actually um, really got into her yogi job because she didn't necessarily like being with her experience. So the, my co-teacher and I had to prevent her from getting lost in stove cleaning, even though it would have been was sort of selfish. Like, should we let her clean the stove? <laughs> we had to practice self-denial to keep her from doing it because it was actually the retreats were happening in this person's house. So he would have loved to have her spend two hours <laughs> getting every single little crumb off the top of the stove. But it was actually that it was hard for this person to be with certain aspects of her experience. So she would lose herself in the smoothness and the comfort of that. And at some point, we had to say, you know, you, she has to do another job, one that wasn't quite so wonderful for her. And after that, she actually got into something that was extremely fruitful for her seeing something from her childhood that had really triggered her and she had access to it for the first time with the sort of at first the full-blown overwhelming like difficulty of it and then more and more being able to work with it and bring it into caring awareness and actually tolerate the intensity of her feeling and become more whole like recover actually a big part of her life that was being covered over by that what you might call physical acting out. So there's something to appreciate in that process, something very, very important and profound that can happen to be able to be with all of our energies. So sometimes we feel sort of very smooth and wonderful and to connect with that and feel the energy of that and let it flow through you. And then when we feel sort of like a scrambled omelet also Notice that and let that flow through. Rumi said, out, behind, out beyond ideas of good and bad, there is a field. I will meet you there. So the remembering the instruction part of the talk is quite complete now, um, pretty much. And I'll move into something more about something like faith or trust. Because when there's triggering or when we feel reactive and when we're being asked to turn to difficulty in the body or the mind, it feels a little bit crazy to do it. Like, why should we do this? Why should we want to feel nasty feelings? Why should we not just, um, as one person said today, go to a water park nearby? <laughs> it would be so much fun. And then, as another person said, you would also still be carrying yourself with you to that water park. So um, there's a certain way that you can't really run. Like the problem that you run from is the one that you're gonna, that's going to keep pursuing you um, until you actually are able to live with it. Someone that we know, uh, Trudy and I know quite well, was uh, learning to work out with a trainer at a gym recently. And they, that person was complaining about the pain of working out with the trainer in the focused way. And Trudy gave me this story um, recently. I hope I'm not stealing it from your talk. She told that person, um, no hurt, no big shirt. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, when you're trying to build up your muscles. It's sort of a better, more funny version of no pain, no gain. <laughs> what? The guy at the gym was wearing it, was wearing that no hurt, no big shirt. So not that we're in this to get the big shirt. <laughs> Maybe we'd give them out at the end. But there's something. It's not that the suffering is good for us the way it might have come across in some of our religious upbringing of the past, that penance and self-mortification is going to get you somewhere good. The Buddha, actually, there's stuff in the tradition about how that wasn't really fruitful, and he discovered that that didn't really go very far. But that there's power in the greater and greater opening to our actual experience. It's a different kind of thing. Does that make sense to you? It's not that suffering per se is actually helpful. Like suffering without awareness actually is, can be kind of damaging, I think. But in the becoming open, like sometimes I feel it in the last sitting of the night, like when I'm kind of tired and the body's aching, but because I've been mindful all day, there's strong mindfulness. It almost feels like the body is like, bioluminescent or something like because there's it's really full of awareness and also full of pain at the same time it's like it's it, you almost feel the awareness as a light that um, because of it meeting the intensity of pain and the Tibetan tradition has meditations on inner fire or inner incandescence and I think that's what happens when we meet pain with awareness, or when we actually meet any state, joy, pain, boredom, neutrality, with awareness, it starts to sort of glow or takes on kind of a glow. And that's where the transformation takes place, not because we have an agenda for our emotion to change or the very sticky, painful block in our heart to become something else, but because we're able to be with it with that open compassion of saying, like, it's okay for you to be just the way you are in this moment, oh feeling, or oh pattern, or oh emotion, or oh knee. Um, the same with metta, that when the obstacles to metta come up and we're still holding the intention of kindness toward our experience and being able to investigate, like our heart is completely closed, but we have the intention to be kind and we start to be kind to those places that are shut down and eventually, the transformation does really start to happen. Swami Kripalwananda, I think, said, this is um, quoted in Tara Brock's book, my beloved child, break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your own heart. You stop feeling that love that is the wellspring of your vitality. The time has come, your time, to live, to celebrate, and see the goodness that you are. So sometimes my practice lately has been to reach out with goodness or from goodness to things that I find bothersome. So rather than... Uh, telling the inner critic to shut the fuck up as <laughs> might be helpful for some people at certain times. I don't know, but um, for me, it's more like almost like reaching out to that critical, painful voice and saying like, you know, I know you're 
probably trying to help me somehow. You know, you want me to do well, you want me to look good, you want me to, you know, give a talk that's just as good as Wes's talk was last night and <laughs> have everybody laughing the entire hour. Um, <laughs> but maybe you're kind of hurting me with all this perfectionism. Is it okay if you relax a little bit? And somehow that process of reaching or connecting or interacting with experience from a place of that sort of goodness or kindness or awareness or connection and really starts to work. Um, so something like this monstrous critical voice can seem to sort of shrink down and, and like sort of admit that it's just trying to help. Um, and it didn't know that I was actually capable of being in charge or something like that. <laughs> Anyway, try it. See if that kind of advice can work for you. So William Stafford writes, it could happen anytime. Tornado, earthquake, Armageddon. It could happen. Or sunshine, love and salvation. It could, you know. That's why we wake and look out. No guarantee in this life, but some bonuses, like morning, like right now, like noon, and like evening. So there's some faith that this works, that we can be all right with things. A sense that develops as you've been here through these days that actually you responded more kindly to yourself than normal or over the years of your practice that you've been able to clear a little pathway by which you connect with your breath where you're actually connecting with yourself in a kind way rather than sort of using trying to be aware of your breath as a setup for failure as many of us do for quite a long time where you learn that your ground and your moment is here, your ground and your moment is now. And it's as if there's no now without a here, like there's never an empty moment, there's always a moment of sort of something going on, or pretty much almost always. We're so completely enfolded and enclosed in our experience at all times, it's really quite amazing that it's going on kind of night and day, even in our dreams. We're completely enworlded by so many different things. As we start to be a little bit more able to see ourselves in different places, different moments, like sometimes sort of a god and sometimes a demon and sometimes a person and sometimes bored and sometimes hungry and all those things, we start to feel a sense of relief that as we've been okay with all these different states of ourselves, we're not just one thing. That we might, we're a body with our five senses. We have sort of a participation in the world through our body, as Wes said, we're not strictly divided away from the world. We're actually part of the world that way. We also have a capacity to respond to our experience. There's pl 
pleasant, there's unpleasant, there's neutral, and there's great resonance that moves through our psyche based on all of that great amount of mental activity in response to physical things, pleasant, unpleasant, or indifferent. We have the capacity to recognize things like apples and cups of tea and people and remember people's names sometimes and stereo speakers and stuff like that. That's another kind of part of what happens for us, right? And then uh, we have impulses and things that come up from the depths so that when we have a, see a cup of tea in front of us, we are unable to resist grasping for it, even though we might sometimes want to resist and think that we don't really need to have another cup of tea because we're going to stay up till 3 o'clock. But right now, we somehow still take it, those impulses that are not necessarily in our control. And then there's something about knowing all of it, that this consciousness is here, registering everything, passively listening to everything that we think and going, uh-huh, wow, <laughs> you know, and thank you for your opinion. And it's all quite inconstant. It's all moving all the time. Here's a quotation from a book called uh, Vaslav and Lena, a very beautiful book about young love. But of course time passes. It's one of the truths of the universe, no matter how much pain, how much joy, how much nervousness, how much anxiousness, how much fear, falling, time passes. So the event is suddenly upon her, and then those hours, even the hours at the time that seemed like millennia, seem in retrospect to collapse upon themselves so that the arrival of the event seems actually sudden. And the waiting seems to have passed, and possibly quickly, and those hours seem to never have existed. That is how Lena felt, alone in her room on her 17th birthday, picking up the phone to call Vaslov. It's like that. It's full. It's very intense. And it always comes down to a moment. Um, all the past collapses into now, even though we're still carrying reverberations of it. And in a sense, when we open up that way, we start to feel that the little me who needed so much to be in control doesn't really need to be in control so much anymore. It's maybe more satisfying to say that we are more open, that we can let things flow, that we can see the perfection of things as they are, even as we try to right the wrongs and suffering of this world, that within all of the privilege that we've had to live in safety and to be protected by you know, horrible armaments and some of us to be members of social groups that just didn't ever earn the capacity to be middle class but were born that way, that, that we need to actually act and bring ourselves to be part of the cycle of rehealing the natural world and rehealing the social world and interaction by interaction and moment by moment trying to heal ourselves and other people, that we also know that we can only do this much. We can only do it conversation by conversation or moment by moment at a time. And that becomes a kind of intuitive place of balance as we observe ourselves in this way. I'm going to read a story, and then we're coming close to the end of our talk, so thank you so much for listening and staying this far. 
not running out of the room. Is that, is that a giggle? <laughs> anyway, um, some of you may be sleeping. That's okay. I'll survive. I know. Three months ago, my long-term girlfriend left me. We'd both known it was over, but she was the one strong enough to walk away. This actually comes from a collection called The Best Feeling in the World, which is significant. Um, on the day she returned her house keys, I made an appointment to get a prescription for Prozac. I'd battled depression in my teens, and I told the doctor I knew I would get over this, but right now I couldn't stop crying. I just needed something to get me back on solid ground. He wrote me a prescription for 60 milligrams per day and sent me out. In a matter of weeks, my body began reacting to the drug. Um, more and more misery comes. I'm shortening the story a bit. When I finally stopped the medication, the emotions I hadn't been feeling came back in force. If Prozac had been sepia-toned, withdrawal was technicolor, vivid and terrifying. I swung from depression to mania. I drank and slept too much. I wondered how much longer I could take this. One day I was at the supermarket trying to restock my pantry and get my life in order. The wheels of my shopping cart rattled. In the cereal aisle, I took a moment to debate puffs versus O's, and I heard a pop song playing in the background, an uncomplicated lyric about love. I stopped and listened, and the realization slowly came to me. It was over. She was gone. There was nothing I could do to get her back. And I felt sad, but not destroyed. For the duration of the song, I let the sadness wash over me, a pure, unadulterated emotion. It was beautiful. Says E. Hemingway from San Francisco. So the best feeling in the world can be, what are we feeling now? How can we be with ourselves now? As the blues singer Keb Moe says, when you're just feeling like dust on an empty shelf, remember you can still love yourself. So at that point, we start to reach what I might like to call the higher laziness, where we realize that we can actually put the whip away and almost let the natural dynamic of what's happening already be our practice, be our ground. That's what I think the Buddha is doing when he touches the ground there, that the ground of your being is right exactly where you are at all times. There's a great enlightenment story in the Tibetan tradition where one master named Patro Rinpoche and his close disciple are lying out on the side of a hill looking at the sky. And the disciple has been practicing really, really hard and really trying for his great breakthrough. And he said to the master, like, what is it? Like, what's the secret of what you have and, or what you know? And the teacher said, well, so you're lying here. You feel the cold? And the student goes, yeah, I feel the cold. And you see the sky and you feel the ground, yeah. And you hear that dog barking over there. That's it. And at that point, the student understood that that's it. So this is it. I'm stopping. <laughs> Thank you.
we'll take a little moment to be quiet and let it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.